The following audio is from Village Community Church. For more information, please visit www.villagecommunitychurch.net. Now I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've entitled our series as we go through 1 Timothy, A Shepherd's Guide to a Great Church. Someone could say that title and you say A Shepherd's Guide to a Great Church. Well, a great church is really in the hands of the beholder, right? Like what is a great church? You'll get 35 different opinions as to what constitutes a great church. And I completely understand that. But what I believe is that as we dive into the scripture text of not only the book of Ephesians, but also the book of 1 Timothy, that Paul gives us an extremely good idea of what a great church should look like in the eyes of God. Because that's the one who we live for. We're not living for man. We're not living to please man. And, and, and we may not necessarily always be living just to please God as much as we are to be obedient to him and to have a relationship with him. In our obedience and our relationship with him is where we find that, that pleasure. That is our sacrificial offering to him. So anyways, Paul, as he writes this, we can break down the book as follows. Chapter one is, is basically Paul's message directly to Timothy with the charge to stay at Ephesus don't run away from the problems and charge these guys not to teach any different doctrine he goes into chapter two and three and he begins to talk about ministry and 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 he emphasizes how to set up your ministry how to do ministry in the context of a church and even in the context of a worship service and then chapters four five and six he's dealing with the minister himself which i'm really excited to continue to press on as we figure out what does it mean? What are the qualifications for people that, that, that are elders in the church and deacons in the church? And how do you set all that stuff up? But today, today is a scripture text, which I believe that many pastors who just choose a topic or, or, or maybe even a short passage of scripture to preach from will not normally wake up in the morning and say, I really think I want to teach through 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. It's not an easy scripture passage to talk through in 2018 because it could feel somewhat offensive, especially to women, because that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, let me just say this. We made it through Ephesians chapter 5, and you guys did a fantastic job. And I'll say this at the front, and I'll also say it at the back. I'm super thankful and proud of you as a church family already because the reality is is that what we're going to talk about today, I don't really see many problems with in the context of our church. So you are making it somewhat easy for me to be able to dialogue through these things. But it is very important that we dive in and, and, uh, and look at what God's wanting to teach us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and then we'll, I'll pray and then we'll get to work. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Lord God, as our worship time went on this morning and and you um, gave the words to those people to write about the peace that you give to us with Christ, I'm pleading for that peace today. As we attempt with our our minds that have been um, grown up in, in, in the 1950s, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even this time in the year of 2000, Lord, my prayer is that um, you would teach us today, that you would shape and mold our hearts and our minds to be in accordance and in agreement and in obedience with you and with your word. I pray that you would not allow Satan to, um, to, to, to deceive us or, or to divert us or to trip us up in any sort of a way, but that you would prepare us for this wonderful message that you have for us today. I pray that you'd help me not to say anything that's contrary to your word. I pray that you would guard my heart and my mouth from even the sinful desires that can creep up in me and that you would just help me to be obedient in the midst of this as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to ask you guys a question here. The the, the question I'm asking is, what are the roles of the doors in our church. Anyone? The roles of the doors in our church, like, you know, keep the cold in or out, temperature control maybe. Privacy in the bathroom. Privacy in the bathroom. You need that, don't you there, buddy? <laughs> Privacy in the bathroom. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay, well, if that's the case, then what's the purpose of the windows? In and out, seeing in and out, yeah. Letting a little bit of light in here. I mean, what's the purpose of my microphone? So you can hear the voice, and I'm, yep, so when I'm screaming at you, you can actually understand what I'm screaming at you about. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And the speakers, to bring that, that through... Okay, yep. So what is the role of men in church? To listen. listen. (laughs) This guy's on fire over here. (laughs) To lead, okay. How about what is the role of women in the church? (laughs) To say that so the elephant walks in the room and... right. What's really difficult about asking some of these questions is that like what I was asking in regards to the objects for, it was pretty easy, right? Keep the doors closed for privacy. They're there to keep the heat in or the cold out or whatever. The windows let the light in, the microphone and the purpose of this. But when, when you ask the questions, what is the role of men in the church? It was kind of like immediately it was to lead, right? But there's probably more, 
right? We have lots more men doing different things in the church as, as to how they're gifted. And, and the same thing with women. You have, what is the role of women in the church? I mean, these are questions right here that can quickly divide a body of people and get people into fights and to arguments. And so what I would say is that it's hard to ask that question because I would say, what is the role of this chair? In church, the, the role of the chair is to hold people up and, and they can sit down upon it. But if I ask you, what is the role of that chair when you're up in an airplane and you're going to jump out of the airplane? Do you strap the chair to your back? No. And likewise, we wouldn't lay out a parachute right here, but they all have their roles based on their significance. And so what I would say is that the question that we should be asking is rather than what is the role of men or what is the role of women in the church, I think the question that we should be asking is what has God's, what is God's design for structure and order in the church and how do men and women fit into those structures? And I believe that what Paul does here is that in the context that he's talking about, in the context of the local church body, I believe that God has clearly orchestrated the model for how we are to conduct our behavior in the setting of public worship. And it's our conduct that sets us apart from the world. That's why I titled this Conduct That Sets Apart. Well, what type of a conduct does that look like? First of all, he starts out in verse 8 here. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This comes right off of a couple weeks ago when we talked about, first of all, while you're in Ephesus, the first thing I want you to do is pray for your leaders. Pray for those people who have power, authority, and influence over you. Do you remember what they're praying for? Praying that we would lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And Paul uses this platform to build this foundation for these men. He says, I desire then in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or without quarreling. Well, what is this conduct? The conduct is really the appearance of what's going on. Men are standing with holy hands. I think what Paul has in mind is, is he's thinking about King Solomon in the Old Testament. These people were highly, highly educated in the Old Testament. And King Solomon, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, I, I encourage you to read it. It's after he's built his temple and he's calling the people to bring up the ark, that they would establish the ark, that God's presence would be inside this inner temple. And he's gathered all the people together. As a matter of fact, when he says it, he says, men from this tribe, and I want the, the elders of the church and the men of the leaders of the families to all come and gather together. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. It's a posture that we have that is really showing that we're giving God the glory. Lord, as we pray, as we commend people, as we go to the Father in prayer, it's a, it's a, it's a submission thing for, for us as men before the Father. It's a, it's a worship thing, but it, it is a surrendering of who we are as men, lifting up our hands in prayer. And the interesting thing is, is if you read in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is praying for thanksgiving, for intercession, and supplication for all the people. And if you turn back to chapter 2, he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I'm thinking Paul had this in mind, that as men are to lead, their appearance ought to lead 
by praying with hands lifted high. But it's not just the hands lifted high. He goes on to say this, that you're lifting holy hands. What does that mean? How do you have a holy hand, right? What What does that necessarily mean? It literally means a hand that is undefiled, that is pure, that is righteous. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The idea is that if we're lifting holy hands, let me just say it this way, if we're lifting hands, and for whatever reason, we got some sin issues going on in our lives, we got an issue with a brother, We better take care of that. We better not worry about going to God the Father in worship when we got problems and issues between our brothers. We should leave our gift of worship at the altar and go and reconcile. If you got sin issues in your heart, hidden secret things going on inside of your life, before you come to the Father and worship men, you need to be purified. Now the truth is, is that in Christ, you are purified. You're holy in Christ. But that's why confession and repentance is so important. Because if we live this sin-filled, regular, habitual sin relationship, we're not necessarily lifting, raising holy hands. And so our appearance from the outside is definitely false if that's the case. He goes on to say, by lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, there's your example for what it means to, to, to have a defiled hands. The idea here of, of being anger ang- have, through anger and quarreling is really that you're not stemming a relationship that's love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, this was the charge in 1 Timothy to Timothy. Paul said, Timothy, I want you to stay there and charge these people to stop speaking wrongful doctrines But I want you to do this because the aim of our charge is to have a church family that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Jesus has also said that it's not what you put inside your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. And words come out of our mouth as communication, as an expression of something. Well, we are also communicating something when we're quarreling with people and we can't come to grips or terms with forgiveness. And he's saying, rather than being angry and quarreling with people, you need to come to the Lord with a pure heart. So there might be some work that needs to be done inside of some of these men. Do you understand that the outward appearance of these men raising holy hands ultimately stems from a pure heart? Because if we're standing here like this and we got some issues that are still going on, people from the outside are going to look at us like, look at that guy. Man, that guy's got all together. He just loves Jesus. Probably goes home and just takes such good care of his family. Has a great relationship with his wife. Leads his kids really, really well. But if we're raising hands, it should be coming stemmed from a pure heart. Then he goes on to say this likewise, anytime there's a likewise, that's like in the same way, in the same way as men are, are lifting holy hands, this is addressed now to the woman's conduct. 
He says this in verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls, but costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. As the men's conduct was an outward appearance with their hands raised high, this is also targeting the outward appearance of women in how they dress. Because with the way we dress, we make a statement, don't we? Especially in 2018 with all the brand names and all this kind of stuff. But back then, the appearance also communicated something because the women naturally, especially a married woman, would wear this type of a robe that kind of covers everything from, from neck to toe and kind of you know went wrapped around them and, and, and there was a pretty standard color for them all and it showed this loyalty and dignity that they have to their husbands. However, on the opposite side, Paul gives an example to what is, is difficult or something that, that might not be the appearance of a godly woman. He uses this example by saying, you know, what, not walking in with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Does that mean you can't braid your hair? Does that mean you can't wear gold? Does that mean you can't have an expensive shirt or a dress or pants or anything and, and wear that to church? No, 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 that's not what he is saying. What he is saying is that he used these examples because back in those days, the women liked to do their hair up. And I, so I looked up some of these pictures of it, and man, it's kind of like a wedding day that just went wrong. Right? You know, you found that one woman that you were all excited about because she did your, your best girlfriend's hair, and you're like, oh, I want her to do my hair, you know, and she's doing it all, and everybody's ever excited, and she spins you around, and you look at the mirror, and it's like a bee's nest that has like this bling party. And, and that's what they would do is they get these hairs that were like way up high and they would put all these expensive jewels on and everything. And then they would wear clothing that just had multicolors and it revealed things. And it was essentially saying, hey, I'm walking in to draw attention to myself is what they were doing. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Likewise, women, that you would adorn yourself in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Let's quickly just understand what those things are. Um, Actually, the last two pastors that came here to preach, this is kind of funny because they're guys. The last two guys that came here, one of their questions before they came was, um, what's the dress code at your church? And it was honestly because their hearts were, you know, I love wearing jeans, but hey, if your church doesn't wear jeans and they're not used to that, I don't want to show up that way, right? And so you kind of see that they show up with nice slacks and, the, and they even went with like the sport coat. You've never seen me in the sport coat before, but you know, they're just being careful and cautious. And so this is, this is the idea here, but what they were doing is they were asking, what is the respectable apparel? And that's what Paul's talking about. What is proper and respectable for the dynamic of your church? I think that if some of us went into some other churches the way that we're dressed right now, you might get people that are like, look at that. Oh my goodness, they're wearing a sport jersey. Or hey, look at this guy's wearing a hat. Oh no, you know, right? Like, and, and, and truthfully, let's, let's, let's not be too uh, hard and critical on some of those folks because the truth is, is that some people believe in those types of things and that's okay. If that's the way that they, they house and they run their church, if they're looking at scripture and they're saying this is what's appropriate and this is what's proper, praise God. 
That's okay to do those types of things. But it's what's respectable. And that's what Paul's getting at. And then he goes on to say modesty. Now, when we think of modesty here, we think of making sure everything's all covered so that we're not causing the guy's eyes to look and stumble and fall, right? That's absolutely appropriate. That's absolutely legitimate for what he's talking about. But what he's basically saying is what is appropriate for women to wear, both in the modesty category, but also appropriate to, to be dressed as to not have a distraction. That's the whole bling thing. Like not walking in like you just won the Powerball when you didn't. Or not walking in like you just got done chopping down 35 trees in a forest with an axe and you got baggy pants and a flannel on, you know, and a big dip in your mouth or something like that. It's, it's genuinely what is, is, is appropriate for women to, to wear. And the next thing he says is self-control. And what self-control is, is what everybody has to have. But in regards to, to, to what he's saying to women here is that, that you're dressing in a way that stems from a good, clean, pure heart. You're having self-control. Now, I'm not a woman, obviously, um, but I just have somewhat of a strong hunch that sometimes a woman may dress in a way uh, that, that, that she subtly wants to draw some attention to herself. I, I may be right, I may be wrong. I'm just guessing. I'm also saying there's probably some dudes out there that want to do the same thing. I mean, if you're a big guy and you have enormous muscles, if I had that, I'd be wearing tank tops. <laughs> the gun show, Trey, right? You need to wear a tank top, bro. Especially if I'm hanging out with you because then nobody will mess with me. But when it stems from an impure heart that says, I just want the attention, and you're, again, this is in the context of a worship service. So let's not forget that, okay? Let's not forget that Paul is specifically talking about being in the context of a worship service because what's the reason why we're here? Not for a fashion show, not to have a country club outing, not to come in and even try to grab something and have an experience for ourselves, but we are here to worship the one and only God who has given us salvation. That's why we're here. And Paul's saying, women, with, your, with the, your outward appearance, don't try to draw attention. So the idea here, number one, is not drawing attention to yourself in a worship context through eclectic clothing and, and over-the-top bling uh, or even revealing clothing that may cause some, some men to, to, to draw their attention of their eyes towards you. And the second thing is, is, that, is that the women are not adorning in clothing that paints a wrongful picture of either wealth or somebody that they're not. And also paints a picture that says, I dress this way because I am set apart from the world. This is the body God has given to me. I'm loyal to my husband, you know, whatever that may be, or I'm going to celebrate my singleness by keeping myself pure and, 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 and reserved for my future husband or whatever that may be, not distracting uh, the eyes. Instead, this is what Paul says. You dress with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Where does this come from? First Peter 3. So Paul is saying this and so is Peter. Peter says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of the gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be, listen to this, the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, is very precious. What's he saying here? Let your beauty come from the hidden person of who you are. And that is something that God and God alone can only see. In God's sight, that is very, very precious. And you know, the gospel trains us by shaping our hearts and molding us to live this way. In Titus chapter 2, Paul's writing to him and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the gospel trains us through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these things. So if you've failed in the past, if you're failing now in the midst of this, this God's saying, okay, we're in, the, we're in the business of training. I'm training you to do these things. When I worked for a church, I worked a, as a technical director for a church, and they offered this um, gathering called the Secret Keeper Girl event. Have any of you ever heard about the Secret Keeper Girl event? They're inviting all these teenagers to come in, uh, teenage girls to come in, and they're talking about you know sexual purity and keeping their bodies covered and, and the importance of having dads involved in the, in the clothes shopping. That might freak out some of you younger girls, like, I don't want my dad picking out my clothes. But the reality is, is that they want the dads doing it because the dad's like, that's too much. Right? Let's put a pillowcase or four of them around you, and we'll let you walk out that way. However, um, this was like a two-day event, and some of the moms that came in that brought the daughters um, were not quite dressed appropriately. Now, this was not in the context of a worship service, so I, I can't totally say this about it, but, but some of the moms that were there, um, they had some shirts that, that were a little lacking in the thread count, if you know what I'm saying. And they showed up the next day because I'm thinking to myself as I'm viewing this situation as to how it's going on, and then I see the same moms coming back the next day, not changing the way that they dress, but telling their daughters to dress that way. You know, the idea here is that the gospel is what continues to train us. So let's give grace to one another as we walk through these kinds of things. And, and don't be hard on yourselves if there, for whatever reason, is anything that may be coming upon you as God continues to train us. It's not only the appearance of the women, but it is also the actions that Paul is addressing here. Look with me in verse 11. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. Those sentences right there, I think, can really drive home in some people's hearts, primarily some women. When we start hearing the word submission, when we start hearing you be quiet, we can start to think of some of these negative thoughts that other men have said to us or other pastors may have said or, or something where it's like you just kind of close your mouth and you don't say anything, but you listen. And I'm so sorry for that. I'm extremely sorry. As a matter of fact, I'll just confess to you that there's been times in my marriage to Marsha where I have said those things to her out of my own frustration and insignificance and, and insecurity because I'm trying to somehow hammer my point home. So I just want you to know I'm not standing up here as somebody who just nailed this my whole entire life and I'm deeply ashamed for the times that I've been a total jerk face to my wife. Now, 
we've forgiven each other. We're good. Everything's praise God in the midst of that. But what I want to say is that I'm sorry for any of you women who have felt that way out there because that's not what Paul is trying to communicate here. There's something that's called the regulative principle when it comes to putting together a church or a church service. And the, regula- the regulative principle is, is not saying, let's set up our church services the way that we want to according to the way that we want to. No, we set up our church according to how the Bible dictates our church order. And I think this comes back to that question. Uh, uh, rather than say, what is the role of women in the church? We should say, what roles does God appoint in the church? And who fills them? And how do we do this? So rather than an emphasis on, on, on these women like not teaching men or not having authority, he's basically saying, this is how women should be learning within the context of the church. Because guess what's happening back in this day? People are gathering together. There's an eclectic group of people. There's some Christians. There's people who worship these idols of Artemis and, and these crazy gods that are in there. And everybody's talking. And, and, and what's the charge again? Teach these men not to teach any different doctrine. So there's a lot of people talking and a lot of chatter that's going on. He was having the same problem in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is actually teaching about orderly worship in a church service. And he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. And we're going to get to that law portion in just a minute. But let's talk about what this word submissive means to help maybe ease some of this tension in here. The word submissive is not just sitting there and submitting to every dumb thing that some guy says to do. It's really a respectful willingness to fall into the order of authority within the context of a church. You see, back then, the guys were called to step up and share a word of the Lord with something, and somebody else would say a prayer. And and all throughout the whole history of creation, men were the ones leading everything through all of this. This respectful uh, willingness, again, is not submitting in some sort of a cowering way, but honoring God by seeking to learn through the system that God has ordained. Have you ever been at a, at a, a, roller, or a, like a roller coaster ride, been in, in line at a roller coaster ride, and you get there, and there's all those little weaving types of things that you're all there, and you're there on a rainy day, and there's like nobody in the lines, right? When there's nobody in the lines, and the line's like way up there, what are you tempted to do? go underneath, right? And as you're going underneath, somebody else is going underneath and then another person goes underneath and it's who can get there the fastest. There's reasons why those lines are there. And that's kind of what I'm talking about here. We ha- even though we don't like that there's empty lines and we got to go like this, oh my gosh, and then we have to go like this. You're like, oh, it's all the way back there by Victor, you know, and I call me, right? That's what just made, but they're there for a reason. Or okay, let me give you another example. You're out driving home late at night. It's you know midnight or whatever, and you come up uh, to a stop sign, and and there's nobody or a stop and go light, and it's a red light, and you're sitting there, and you're like, is that like the longest light on the planet? Like if there's 50 cars going, you're like, I understand why this red light is here. Otherwise, you're just like. I'm going to go, you know, imagine if there were no lights 
Because the lights at that point in time are the same reason why the lights are there during the rush hour traffic. And that's to keep order. That's to keep everything flowing properly. That's to let people go when they're supposed to go and keep people stopped when they are. And I think this is what Paul is saying in the midst of the submission part of it. That, that specifically for the women, being in submission to learning and being led under the men is what God has created in his order to do it. I think I have this statement up on, on the screen that might ex- explain everything. Do you have that there, JT? Paul's prescription for church order comes from God's created order. This is where this is stemming from. We are not taking cues on how to run our church from what the world says how we should run our church. Or even have in the context of our services. And this is what I mean. If we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, it's just God and this stuff and th- that he's created and man. And it says in chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Who's he talking to there? Who's he giving control and command over to, 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 to govern and to take care of? He gives it to the man. He says, this is absolutely your job. And this is where we're getting back to that 1 Corinthians passage where he says that... Um, For women are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Because later on in the chapter 2 of Genesis, he goes on to say, it's not good for the man to be alone, but I'm going to create a helper who is, does anybody know the word? Helpmate who is fit for the man. One that, that's designed to fit the areas of the man's weakness. Now that doesn't mean that the woman is stronger and bigger or whatever that might be in the context of that relationship. But what it means is that there is a woman who is created, who is fit perfectly to support that man as he shepherds and cares for her. This is the example that Paul gives in the next sentences where he says, this is the reason why. He's saying, I don't permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And here's the reason why. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, isn't that just fair? Adam doesn't get diseased. Adam doesn't get deceived the woman gets deceived and therefore what? She's just got to be quiet in the middle of a church service and not say a word and not teach her have authority over men? I'll be honest with you. Uh, one of the messages that I listened to was from Chuck Swindoll and he made this statement as he was going through this and he says this, the issue of deception cannot be ignored and it can't be forgotten. You see, he brings up this, this uh, what he calls a judicial sentence because the woman was deceived part of her judicial sentence is the idea of remaining quiet as the men lead and teach in the context of the church some of the other judicial sentences that came down the pipeline is God went to Eve and said because of what you did surely in pain uh, you'll have your childbirth will be increased. The pain in your childbirth will be increased. Now he gave out 
sentences to the man too. He says, you're going to work your tail off and only thorns and thistles will be produced from it. We will work our knuckles to the bone. And, and I could, I'd be willing to bet every single man in this room has felt at one time or another where they have just poured everything that they have into their work, into their marriages, into their fatherhoods, and you feel like you've just gotten chewed up and spit out after a real good lunch. So these consequences are real. But Paul is bringing this up for a purpose. And this is where, chat, where verse 15 comes into play and is very important. He says, For Adam in 13 was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is her judicial sentence, as Chuck Swindoll says. In verse 15, though, he says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. I'll tell you what, that's one of the most awkward transitions that I've ever read. Here's the sentence from Eve. I need to be submissive and quiet, but I'll be saved from this judicial sentence by giving birth. Like how, how exciting is that, right? Is that some sort of a payment? It's not. I encourage you at some point in time, because honestly, Chuck Swindoll does a fantastic job at unpacking this through his messages, um, through excellence in ministry, it's called. And he, he gives three options for what this sentence means. And, and I, I can't say it any better than he did. Than he did. So I'm, this is not me. This is him saying this. The first idea is that women are brought safely through childbirth, that they're saved um, by being brought safely through, that they don't perish during giving childbirth. Well, we know that that's not necessarily true because I would imagine there's some very godly women out, women out there that have unfortunately succumbed to whatever complications may have happened and, and they lose their life during childbirth. And so I don't necessarily think that that's it and, and nor does Chuck and I agree with him. The second thing is, is that women are saved through childbirth um, because of the Christ child being born into this world. And there is a multiple, uh, there's a big group of people that would believe that that's what this statement is saying is that women are saved through the birth of the Christ child, but that's really not the context. That's here. We're in the context of a worship service and, and Paul giving his examples and his justification for what he just said in regards to um, women not having authority and teaching over men. But the third one, um, he does such a beautiful job as to what this is. He says that women are saved by being delivered from the judicial sentence by this statement. A woman's greatest achievement is found in the bearing of children and in her devotion to her divinely ordained role to help her husband, to bear their children, and to follow the life of a faithful and godly wife. The woman's greatest achievement will not occur in the place of public worship service, but in the realm of the home. And I think what he's communicating here and what Paul is communicating here is not necessarily what is the role of a man in the church or what is the role of a woman in the church as much as he's saying God in his created order has ordained men to lead in the context of the church. Let me be real clear about something. It's in regards to the teaching and it's in regards to shepherding and caring for the flock. 
Erica, when she's up here, Wendy, when she's up here, Lydia, when she's up here, you're in your role. You're doing exactly what God has called you to do. That's to use the beautiful voice that God has given to you to sing into the microphone that comes through the speakers that prepares our hearts in the midst of worship. That's your role. That's what Erica's role is when she comes up here. Even when she's sharing something from, the, from her heart about Scripture, it's not necessarily being out here teaching men and, 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 and sorting through the Scriptures. Now, let me say this other thing too. There are lots of women out there who are so much smarter than me, more knowledgeable in the Scriptures, have an understanding of the Greek and the Hebrew far and above my level of capacity. But what Paul is saying is in the midst of a worship service, the men are the ones who should be doing it. And you know what? We should be doing a really good job at it and not take a lackadaisical approach to what's going on in here. And he's saying the woman's victory happens in the home. That's the fit helper that God has given to men and to this world. That's, could you say what's the role, what's a man's role in the household and answer that? Sure, you could say what's the woman's role in the household, you could say that as well. Here's what the man doesn't do. The man doesn't get pregnant. Therefore, the man doesn't have morning sickness. The man doesn't have a weak bladder because the baby's pressing on that thing all night long. The man doesn't get all swollen because he's filled with another child. The man doesn't get heartburn because the baby is elbowing into the mother's stomach. The man doesn't have backaches because there's this thing way out here. The man doesn't give birth. Some of you men think that happens when you have a bad stomach ache, but the reality is, is there's something very different about that. And that's not birth. The man doesn't get up and give night feedings every two hours or 45 minutes, whatever that is. And the man probably doesn't change as many poopy diapers as the mother does. Or sit with vomit on your arm. Or stand with one child in one arm, another child down here while she's flipping eggs over here with another bun in the oven waiting for this to happen, only for her husband to come in and sit on the couch and not say anything. I don't think the husband is going to stand there doing it. Why? Because he's not called to do it. This is the gift that God gave to women. And I'll say this, there has got to be a special attachment that women have to their children that men will never, ever have because of that. That is your beautiful place. And it's not that the women have to do this, it's that the women get to do this. And it's not that the men have to be teachers and elders and all that, but when we're called to do something like that, we get to do it. So let me say this in closing. We are so incredibly blessed to have a second Adam and to have a second, well, we don't really have a second Eve, but our second Adam is Christ. The first Adam, the man that God created who was brought into this world failed. And therefore God had to do something about that. And he sent his one and only son to be our second Adam through which we can be redeemed. And we don't have to live under this judicial sentence of death. That's why when we sing those songs about when we're staring death in life, I'm confident that the power of God will save me through it. 
He is our great high priest. The second Adam gives us a second chance. And the same thing for women. Because of Christ. You are redeemed and you are restored. So men, let me ask you this. Do you have a heart posture inside that would cause you to pray with holy hands raised up in the air? This is not a command for you guys to stand in here with your hands in the air during worship and doing all of those things. But it is a command that if you don't have a pure heart, you got to do something about that. You got to take that to the Lord. And you have to invite him to purify that heart. Men, I encourage you to love your wives for those who are married sacrificially and to care for them and protect the single women and protect the widows. That is our job. And we don't do that with any harsh words, but we do that, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians, with gentleness and patience and kindness and long-suffering. Guys, let's give our women a reason to trust us. Let's give our women a reason to want to willingly fall into place under submission and under our leadership. That they respectfully and willingly want to follow under it, that that it becomes easy. Guys, we have to do that. We have to lead with the heart posture of praying with unstained hands by being lead repenters and that we seek and we ourselves seek to submit to Christ himself. Because if the woman is standing uh, uh, before the Lord, um, she has been under our covering, but we just stand right in the sight of God. Women, again, you've made this message extremely easy for me to bring to you, even though it's a difficult thing to talk about. But let me just give you just a few words of encouragement. Uh, The first question I would ask is, what is the posture of your heart to what God's word says about this? About both your appearance and why you would choose to dress the way that you do? Again, I'm just asking the questions, okay? I'm not saying anything other than just asking the questions from the text. But where is your heart posture toward the Lord versus pleasing the eye of some other woman or pleasing the eye of some other man. And do you understand that your value isn't in how you dress, in how you look, or what you do, or what you earn? Your value is in that inside heart that God looks upon considering you his precious jewel and his precious gem. Let me say this to the context of the whole entire church. I've said in the past that you are the church, but the church is not about you, and that's absolutely true. But you may be the only expression of God that anybody ever sees. And as I've said to my kids, when they're around other people, they better be more of a godly influence on them than maybe some of their poor behavior influences on you. And what I would say is, are you living in a life that actually shows that you understand and trust the message of the gospel, that you live set apart? Because here's the other truth of all of this. A lot of the things that we're taught today don't just pertain to the context of a worship service. Living this way outside of the context of the worship service brings glory and honor to God. So church... You are the expression of God. 
Let us seek God for how to set up a church, not seek the world on how to set up a church. In this way, our conduct will glorify God and bring him honor. And we get to enjoy his blessings. There's no distinction between male or female, between bond or free. There is a distinction in the process of church structure and church order. But let us remember this. The charge that Paul has called that church and our church is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is so good. This is so good. When we live in obedience, we get to experience God's blessings. And I promise you, he will bless the fruit of our work and the fruit of our label and our labor, and you will see him use you spread this message. Not only just adults, but you students in this room. When you get back to school in a month, and I know you're like, I just threw up in my mouth because you said school. Here's the deal: when you get back to school, these messages of how you as men, as young boys, need to live, you can carry this into your school conduct. Absolutely respecting those girls that are around you, respecting the teachers and and the authority and and the people that you have. When you go away to college, right? You can be on your own, pal. You got decisions to make and decisions not to make. Thanks be to God that you got the answers right here. And I'm pulling for you for sure. We need to live conduct that sets us apart, that brings God glory. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. God, I pray that as we leave here that you will take all of the things that have been said in each one of our hearts and stitch it into the places that need to be made right, that you would affirm the places that are already right, and that you would stretch our hearts and our minds to become deeper and more committed followers of you, Lord Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would manifest in our hearts so much that the outward experience uh, that, that people have from us and that our conduct would not only be holy and pleasing to you first and foremost, but would be edifying the other people that you bring in our lives. May your glory be made known through what you've done in and through us in Christ, we pray. Amen.